take your Bibles and open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you are new to the Bible, or if it's been a long time since you have picked one up, I'll help you to remember that those large numbers there are the chapter divisions, those small numbers are the verse divisions. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 all the way to 17 this morning. Verses 14 to verse 17. But I'm going to read this section, but I'm going to start back in verse 12 before we do so. So follow along as I read this text. And I thank Christ, and this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. It's an open letter to Timothy, who is there leading in Ephesus. He says, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, a violent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, of whom I am the worst. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me, as the worst, or in me, first of all, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, or to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer as we begin to study God's word this morning? Lord, your word, your law is perfect. It is sure. It makes wise the simple. And it rejoices the heart. It is right. It is pure and it enlightens the eyes. It is clean and it endures forever. Your judgments, O Lord, are true and righteous altogether, and they are to be desired. More than silver and gold, more than anything else that this world has to offer. O Father, I pray that you will so work in our hearts this morning that we will delight not, not merely in your word, but in you. For this word is, your, is a revelation of your goodness, of your grace. Help us, O God. Assist us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. As we begin Thanksgiving week, it is probably a good time for each of us to meditate, to think about when the last time we can recall in our lives when we were overwhelmed with thanksgiving. When was the last time you were overwhelmed with gratitude? Over Not just a touch of it, not even feeling it, but overwhelmed by it. My guess is that feeling of being overwhelmed by thankfulness, it, it doesn't happen to us all that often. We may feel, feel thanksgiving, we may feel happiness at times, but there are some things that need to happen for it, for us to feel overwhelmed by it. 
You know, so much in this world we, we work for. You know, student, if you get a, a good grade on a test, you are not thankful for that grade. You worked hard for it. You may be happy with it, but thankfulness doesn't quite enter into the equation generally. Those of you who get a paycheck week after week or bi-weekly or bi-monthly, however your paychecks come, my guess is while you are always happy to receive it, thankfulness isn't quite a part of it. It doesn't quite meet up with what you feel because why? You worked for that paycheck. Even if you were to get an end-of-the-year bonus, some of you will get an end-of-the-year bonus. And you will be delighted with what you get. But you'll know that the success of the company, in part, is dependent on you and your hard work. And so you had some hand in that. And so while you will be thankful to receive it, happy, delighted in it, thankfulness, overwhelmed with thankfulness, and probably doesn't come into it. You know, you get a free coffee or a free pizza or a free burger, but only after you have, you know, bought so many pizzas or coffees or burgers or whatever it is to, to earn that free thing. You know, my dad used to tell me there is no free lunch, and he's right. There's almost nothing that really comes to you that is just given. And kids, spouses... You, you get a Christmas present from your parents' children, and you are happy, thankful, but there is a part of you that says, okay, this is my parent. They're going to give this to me. They, they, maybe, this is not good, but maybe you even feel like they owe it to me. I'm their child. I'll be happy with it. Spouses, the same kind of thing sets in. If you were to receive, wives, something massive from your husbands, I mean, something spectacularly huge as a Christmas gift from them, and you were to be overwhelmed, there may be a part of you that now says, okay, how do I make this up? I abided by that $20 limit, and they clearly went way over. Your gift is still in the mail? Like, what excuse are we using? Is there some expectations that's coming with this gift? Is there some, some attachment here for us to feel genuinely overwhelmed by thankfulness? We need to feel that the gift that we receive is, is almost excessive. More than that, we need, to, we need to know that the gift isn't merely random. That is, it, it's not coming to us... Um, like the lottery, where our number simply comes up and it, it is dropped in our laps. It, no, there's no thankfulness there. It was random. It was impersonal. We might be happy with it. We might be delighted in it. But there was no personal attachment there. More than this, for us to experience genuine, overwhelming thankfulness, we need to see our own unworthiness of whatever gift we receive. You may receive a bonus, but if, if you were to receive a, a massively, a, a far greater bonus, not only more than you expected, but more than your peers, and you were to receive that bonus despite the fact that you knew and your bosses knew 
that that past year you were a particularly bad worker. Now, the rest of the employees might think that is unjust. And it would be. But you would be justified in feeling thankfulness. And genuine, overwhelming thankfulness is rare. And in our text, Paul expresses it. Without ever using that word, it just it bubbles on the scene. It bubbles uh, on every verse, on every phrase. There is a sense of just overwhelming thankfulness that he feels that just comes and rises to the surface. In verses 3 to 11, Paul has talked about these other teachers there in Ephesus whom Timothy is to, to no longer allow to teach in this church. And part of the reason is because these teachers, they have, one, they have redirected the gaze of believers away from what matters most into those things that are speculative, into those things that can't be known, into those things that have no profit spiritually. More than this, they have, in verses 7 to 8, they have redirected their use of the law. No longer using the law as a means by which they may glory in Christ to live out what God has already done for them. No, now they are using the law as a means by which they may approve, gain God's approval. That they may seek God's favor. To to lay down their own self-righteousness by which they may approach God. And both of these things are common in Christianity, aren't they? You and I, we so easily get distracted We so easily get our eyes taken away from what really matters. Even about religious things, we we begin to focus in on those things that do not serve us. We get engaged with questions that ultimately will not lead us to greater joy in God, but only lead us to greater speculation about what might be. Or we lay down our own righteousness as if if God will be pleased with us because of how good and right and obedient we are. As we we think, yes, maybe we, we came to God through Christ, but now, now we can come back to God day after day after day because we are particularly righteous people. Because we have been good. We have been holy. We are abiding by whatever standards, by whatever laws and rules we have set down for ourselves. And both of these rob us of thanksgiving. Because no longer are we thankful to God for what he has done. Our minds are engaged with other smaller, lesser things. No longer can we see God's own righteousness and how he is established the way for us to come and brought us near by the blood of his own son. No, now we are trying to establish our own righteousness before him. He accepts us because we are acceptable. And Paul here in these verses empties all of that, of that power. He shows in his own life, in his own ministry, how it upends that shallow yet persistent 
form of fake substitute Christianity that so often threatens us. He begins in 12 and 13 and he praises the Lord for his mercy because God in his mercy has allowed him to enter into the ministry. In fact, God by his mercy has called Paul into the ministry. And of course, Paul's ministry, Paul's call into the ministry as an apostle is the same as God's call in Christ Jesus to Paul to trust and believe. And Paul can say that he obtained mercy in verse 13, despite the fact that he was informally a blasphemer, a persecutor of God's people, a violent man. And Paul wants us to see how excessively excessive God's grace was to him. We see this in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This record of Paul as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, as a violent man, all of this has been scoured away by the grace of God, which he describes as, here in the New King James Version, it is described as exceedingly abundant. The NIV describes it this way. It translates this word as poured out on me abundantly. Or the ESV will say it overflowed for me. Or the New American Standard Bible will say God's grace was more than abundant. All of these translations are translating these phrases. uh, These English phrases are, are, are translating one single Greek word. It's a a word that Paul himself seems to have made up. It is this word, hyperpleonazo, a word that Paul has coined himself. The word pleonazo simply means to overflow, to be excessive, to be too much of something, to abound. And Paul connects Pleonazo, this word which means to be excessive, to be too much, to abound, he connects that with this prefix hyper, which itself means it's, it's a superlative form of it. So it's almost as if Paul is saying God's grace over overflowed. His grace was excessively excessive. It was too much of too much. It didn't just abound, it superabounded. God's grace was more than anything Paul could have imagined. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundantly. It was excessively excessive toward me. And it did something. It was exceedingly abundant toward him with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. You and I typically think of faith and love. Faith is the lever that pulls, that receives grace from God. But Paul switches that here. Here it is God's grace on him that overflows and brings about his faith in Christ and his love towards both God and one another. It is God's grace which produces these things, not his own faith and his own love which bring about God's grace. That is excessively excessive grace. That before Paul ever took a step towards God, God was showing his grace toward him. And that is the way it always is. It is the only way God ever works towards any of us. 
We do not come to Him and and make ourselves worthy of His grace. Then His grace would not be gracious. No, it is God's grace that moves us to come. It is God's grace that brings about our faith. It is God's grace which works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. As Paul would say it elsewhere. God's grace is excessively excessive. You know, some of us here, we struggle with this in our relationship with God. We feel as if we are daily this close to having used up His grace. In our home, whatever candy our boys might get from Halloween they are, we, we ration it out, all right? And so little by little, week by week goes past, they're allowed to take a piece of candy here, a piece of candy there, and generally by the next Halloween, we're dumping whatever candy no one likes. You know, that's the way it works. They, we ration it out over that year. But that's not the way God's grace works. God's grace isn't like, isn't like a, a, a pie that is served in a large group where whoever's cutting that pie needs to make sure that everyone is getting about the same piece and it's all cut, measured, and and rationed out accordingly. It's excessively excessive. There is more than enough. There is more than enough. It, It is like you and I trying to go to the ocean every day, every day with a glass full taking from it and walking home and pouring it out. And we could never empty the ocean out that way. God's grace is, this isn't just enough. God isn't some curmudgeon who's measuring it out, rationing it out, rationing it out for us all so that it doesn't be used up. God's grace cannot be overdrawn. It is eternal as he himself is. It is infinite as he himself is. And so he is able to pour it out abundantly on each of us in a way that is excessively excessive. And Paul wants us to see that, not only for himself, but he he wants us also to, to feel the humbling grace of God. It is our own unworthiness here. We see this in... In verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. So here, by this, he is saying, look, he is going to introduce a truth statement that all Christians must believe and that if you would seek to become a Christian, this is a truth statement that you must grapple with, that you must confess. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Here it is, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is that statement. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That Christ Jesus came implies that he was somewhere before he came. It is a way of Paul who's, who, who is signaling two things. One, that Jesus Christ was preexistent. 
And if Christ was pre-existent before his incarnation, then Christ must have been existent before his incarnation. And if he was pre-existent, he is eternal. And if he is eternal, he is truly God. He came. And he came into this world, which is Paul's way of shortening up this beautiful truth, which we are just getting into the, the time of year in which it is appropriate to celebrate the Incarnation. Not till Friday are you allowed to start putting up Christmas lights, right? We, we know that. That's, that's like legally the way it should work. No Christmas music till Friday morning at the earliest. No, it's to celebrate Christ's Incarnation in the world, that Christ, the true God became one with us. True God became true man. And as true man, he is able to represent us before the Father. And as true God, he is infinite and able to represent all of us. He has the authority to represent us. And he came into this world, why? To be a great moral teacher, to be a social revolutionary, to be an an example of love and compassion. None of these things truly captures who Jesus is. Jesus himself tells us, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Or Mark 2.17, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Or Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or as Paul will say it here, he will sum up these great truths here. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. For anyone to claim to follow Jesus... We must confess, that is, we must admit that this diagnosis is true of us. That we are, we are not just people who have made mistakes. We are not even just people who have sinned and broken God's law. No, we, we are at our very heart. We are at our very core. We stand before God as sinners. This is God's diagnosis of us. I don't think there is any better definition of sin, more moving definition of sin than what John Piper gave many years ago. In preaching, he he declared this. He says, so my definition of sinning is this. Sinning is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. And the bottom of sin, the root of all sinning, is such a heart, a heart that prefers Anything above God, a heart that does not treasure God over all other persons and all other things. What is sin? Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the 
presence of God not prized and the person of God not loved. Why is it, he goes on to say, why is it that people can become emotionally and morally indignant over poverty and exploitation and prejudice and abortion and the infractions of religious liberty and the manifold injustices of man against man and yet feel little or no remorse or indignation or outrage that God is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, dishonored and thus belittled by millions and millions of people. And the answer is sin. And that is the ultimate outrage in the universe. Friends, do you you see why you and I need saving? That word is not an over-the-top word here. You must be saved. For you and I, we have disregarded, we have disobeyed, we have belittled the glorious, infinite, perfect God. We deserve His justice. We deserve wrath. And we will, without a doubt, we will experience it if we do not turn and trust in Christ. And the the amazing truth is that the God that you and I have sinned against and do daily sin against is the same God who has come into the world in Christ Jesus to save sinners. Do not let that truth grow old. Don't let that truth grow stale like old bread sitting on the counter. Remember and recall your unworthiness before God. Let it, let it spur you on this week to thankfulness and joy, just as Paul does. And he goes on to say, this is the faithful saying, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, of whom I am the worst. This is Paul's mindset and it's a mindset worthy of each of us being of each of us imitating. Paul's speaking here honestly and from the heart. He's not speaking literally. That is, Paul does not have omniscience. He does not know all of the people that God has saved and would ever save, and he doesn't know for certainty that he is the absolute worst. He is speaking here with a little bit of exaggeration. He is speaking here from a man who sees his own sin as greater than he sees the sin of others. He is revealing his mindset, and it is a mindset that you and I ought to cultivate. It is so quick, and we are so quick, and it is so easy for us to look down our, our, our noses on others whom we may believe are greater sinners than we, who are worse than we. But a true Christian heart that is stunned by the mercy and the grace of God follows and imitates Paul in this. That we are the greatest sinners. It is that if there is going to be any argument in heaven, it is going to be over who gets this ranking. 
We, we feel our own sinfulness. We feel the keen edge of our own sin greater than we see the sin of others. Paul won't let him conceive of someone greater as a greater sinner than himself. He feels the weight of his own sin too deeply, of his own guilt too deeply. And friends, I, I can attest one of the ways, one of the blessings that I've seen over many years of reading biographies of great Christian men and women is that they often have this mindset. The farther they seem to go in Christ, the farther they, the, the more they become holy to the Lord, they express a greater and greater dissatisfaction with their own selves. A greater sense of their own guilt, a greater sense of their own unworthiness. That it is, it is one of the marks of God's saints. That we feel chiefly as if we are God's sinners. We tremble, we ought to tremble far more at our own sin than we are horrified at the sin of others. And Paul reveals that to us here. And then in verse 16, Paul unpacks the purpose of God's mercy. However, he writes, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy. If he's the worst of all sinners, if we may feel we are the worst of all sinners, why would God show mercy? For this reason, I obtained mercy. That in me, first, or in me, it's the same word that he used earlier when he says, I am chief, that in me, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering, that is, all patience, has a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. You remember the example of that man who had been born blind, who was brought to Jesus, and he was asked, who is it that has sinned? Is it this man or was it his parents who have sinned? That, that has caused him to be born blind. And, and Jesus says, you, you, you're thinking all wrong. It's not because of sin that he has been born this way. Rather, it is so that God may be glorified. And, and then Christ heals him. In the same way, part of the reason, a, a, the reason, for which you and I are saved, for which any of us are shown mercy from God, is so that God might, through us, showcase his patience, his grace, his mercy. And Paul sees his own story as not merely just something for himself to revel in. He sees it almost as, as the, the, the lights on a landing strip at night so that other planes, other people may come and land and find this is the way. This is where you may land safely. This is where Christ is. This is where salvation is. Your testimony of God's mercy to you acts like this. Paul could see this of himself, that God had been incredibly patient with him. For, for decades of Paul's life, he had tried and labored to be the most religious guy he knew, to outdo everyone else around him in obedience, 
in maintaining the law, in being exact in his obedience. But God, he saw, had been incredibly patient with him. For as Paul was trying to establish his own righteousness before God, without realizing it, he was thumbing his nose at God who provides righteousness through Christ Jesus. And he saw that God had been patient with him. He saw that God had been patient with him. Even as he was zealously, for the name of God, for the name of his religion, he was zealously persecuting, murdering, orphaning men, women, and children, leading others in the robbery of, in the, in the, in the, in the robbery of their goods. His story became a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life, to those who are going to believe on Christ for everlasting life. Friends, tonight we have the opportunity to to share. As we sing favorites, we will also have opportunities to, to, to share how God has been gracious to us and merciful. And I hope you will be with us and gather tonight. We need this. It is an opportunity for us to spur one another on. Because our stories of how God has been gracious to us individually, they become signals to the world. They become signals to others. Have you tasted of that mercy? Have you tasted of God's grace to you in Christ? I remember as a I was six years old, but I was, I was not your ordinary six-year-old. I was a proud six-year-old kid. I was, I was a good six-year-old kid, and I, I liked being the good six-year-old kid. I liked being the kid where other parents would tell their kids, why can't you be more like Kendall? And I'll never forget, even as a six-year-old, sitting in church one day, not paying attention like like normal, like a normal six-year-old, counting the lights. I don't know why, why I did that, counting the lights. And all of a sudden, my attention was arrested. As the man who spoke from God's word began to declare God's judgment, his just judgment against us all, and for the first time in my life, I knew I deserved that justice. I was a good kid. But I knew for the first time that I was, I was a sinner who deserved the wrath of God. And that night, service ends, God would not let me go. On the way home, talked to my dad and led me to Christ. You know, for, for years, I sought to follow the Lord And slowly over time, I began to substitute my rejoicing in God's grace for my own laying down of my own righteousness. That old pride was establishing itself once again until I became a senior in high school and it seemed like my world was falling apart. I was angry at God, angry at my parents, 
I wanted nothing to do with, with Christ anymore. I wanted nothing to do with God. I was tired. It felt fake. It felt unreal. My freshman year of college, through sheer circumstance, I was left waiting for a friend to come pick me up. And as I was out waiting on the curb, the songs that I had sung growing up were echoing through my mind. And that song, Arise, My Soul Arise, began to stir in my heart. And just read that for us. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. Thy bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. The Father hears him pray. His dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. That line right there began to crush me. It began to give me hope. Because I felt as if God had turned away from me, as if God would no longer listen to me. But here, reminded, God cannot turn away from the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. To God I'm reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. For the first time in many years I felt confident to go to the Lord, not because he had done, not because of I had been particularly good, but because I sensed what I had so easily forgotten, what I had let slip through my fingers. That it was God's grace to me that establishes us. Friends, if you have not trusted in Christ, I would urge you to do so. He is a great Savior, no matter how great a sinner you may feel. You have not outsinned His grace. You have not outsinned His mercy. You have not even begun to scratch the surface of what He holds in store. Oh, friend, look to Him. I'd encourage you after the service, if you would like to talk about Christ and what He has done, you see me, see, turn to someone nearby. Love to share with you that grace. And Paul ends in praise as only we can as followers of Christ. Verse 17. He praises God for four things in particular. Now to the King eternal. That is, he is the King beyond all restrictions of time. He is the King without an expiration date. A, a King without an end to his term of office. He is the king eternal, immortal. Not only does he 
rule beyond the restrictions of time. He is the one who is beyond the ravages of decay and death. He is immortal. Where everything we love and adore in this world passes away. God's glory, God's worth, God's perfections, God's happiness, his blessedness, they never fade. They never dwindle, never lessen. More than this, he is invisible. That is, he is without any worldly limitations. Because God is invisible, we can't restrict him with an idol or with a figure hanging on a wall. Or by putting something on a shelf and calling it God. Because God is invisible, anything you imagine is less than what God is. You cannot begin to fathom the greatness and the glory of God. He is invisible and he is the God only wise, the God who alone is wise, the only God. But there is none like him. And because of this, he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. In the 1700s, a young man by the name of Jonathan Edwards sat reading these words in 1 Timothy. He read through 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, and as he arrived in verse 17, he sat meditating on this description of God. And a change began to happen in him, where he had before seen God as some sort of tyrant whom he hated and was unwilling to submit to. He describes a change that came upon him. He he writes these words, There came into my soul, and as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense, quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him. From this point on, Jonathan Edwards' life was changed. As he came not only to, to know about God, but to know him and to trust upon him supremely through Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us praise our God. He is the King of ages, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are gracious to us. Help us, O God, to As we reflect upon your grace, help us to rejoice in it. Let us taste and see that you are truly good. Father, remove from us all those other tastes that would drown out our sight and our savoring of you. Instead, O God, work in our hearts that we may find your grace to be excessively excessive, to be abundant toward us in grace and in love. We pray all this in your Son's name, our Savior Christ Jesus. Amen.